from Mamma Mia. Hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. The discussion about recognising Australia's First Nations people in the Constitution is a long story. It's a fight that's been going on since before the Constitution came into effect on the 1st of January 1901. But over 100 years later, Aboriginal people are still trying to be heard, to be recognised, to have some say in their government. So why can't we make that happen? Today, we speak to one of the people who contributed to the Uluru Statement from the Heart as we take a look at our history, the good and the bad. In your lifetime, how many times do you think you've thought about the Australian Constitution? Unless you're a constitutional lawyer or scholar, then like most of us, it might have been brought up in school a couple of times, but beyond that, probably not too much. If you have Aboriginal heritage, maybe you think about it a bit more often. Maybe you think about it because you are still, in 2020, not recognised in it. Well, the Constitution doesn't mention Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people at all. When you first showed up here, we were treated like flora and fauna. To you, this whole place was the botanical gardens. You were wandering around like, ooh, that's a nice tree. Hey, that's not a nice tree. That's Doug. And B, why are you shooting that tree? That's Aussie rapper and comedian Adam Briggs on the ABC's The Weekly. So why does the Constitution even matter if it has such little impact on our day-to-day lives? Well, it has more of an effect than you think. It informs how our parliament works, how our governments and courts are run. Basically, it's a big overarching rule book that we use to establish who can do what and how in Australia. It creates the guidelines for relationships between Australia's people and its institutions. It outlines our national values, and it does this without a single Indigenous voice. And it does so with incredible bias against Aboriginal people. The original draft didn't recognise Aboriginal people at all. They weren't counted in the census. They were also excluded from voting. And there are elements of this racism still in our constitution to this day. You also need to remove the racist part of the constitution. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What parts are racist? The racist parts. Like that bit in section 51 about how you can make laws for people based on their race. Or section 25 where you can stop people from voting based on their race. Wow, that that does sound pretty racist, yeah. Uh, Well, I'm convinced. Let's do this, Briggsy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not sure if this is a good idea yet. Some people feel like recognition means nothing without reform. That's like going, hey, black man, I see you there. That's good Indigenous. (laughs) Another question we need to ask ourselves as we head closer to Australia Day, the day that the first fleet landed on Australian soil, with a directive from the Crown to, and this is important, with consent of the natives, take possession of land for the establishment of colonies, is how much of our country's history we actually know. During that period of first occupation, treaties were negotiated, treaties that were then voided, the land stolen from those who called it home, taking away their ability to survive. There were land wars where thousands of Aboriginal people were killed, fighting for their right to exist in their own home. In the 200 years that followed, the First Nations people of Australia have tried again and again to have their voices heard by those in government. I am calling the Crowbury of all the natives of New South Wales to send a petition to the King in an endeavour to improve our condition. All the black man wants is representation in federal parliament. That's Sydney elder William Barrack in 1933. His and others' calls at the time fell on deaf ears, their petitions not even sent to the King for consideration, stopped by the Australian government. 
In 1967, there was a referendum and the Australian people voted for Aboriginal people to be counted in the census. They were no longer flora and fauna, but actual people in the eyes of the country's law. But still, their voice wasn't allowed to be fully heard. Prime Minister after Prime Minister have rejected calls for a treaty and a voice in Parliament. Bob Hawke, on one of his last days in office, reportedly hung the Barunga Statement that called for an elected national Aboriginal and Islander organisation recognising Aboriginal rights and to negotiate a treaty that recognised traditional ownership and ongoing occupation, a treaty that the Prime Minister himself had promised to negotiate by 1990. He hung it on the wall and cried at his failure to do so. While the landmark 1992 Mabo case saw native title laws recognised for the first time, John Howard rejected the 2000 reconciliation statement. And despite New Zealand, Canada and the US managing to secure treaties with their First Nations people, just three years ago, then-Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull rejected the Uluru Statement from the Heart, a document signed by nearly 300 representatives of Australia's Aboriginal community that took 10 years to put together calling for a constitutional Indigenous voice in Australia's parliament. Turnbull saying it would be too confusing for the Australian people. Well, I I can tell you it would be effectively be a third train. As to its prospects at a referendum, let me tell you, I honestly, as someone who's had some experience in how easy it is to change the Australian constitution, it would have no prospect of success whatsoever. Professor Megan Davis is one of the people who helped create the Uluru Statement from the Heart. She's a constitutional lawyer, pro-vice-chancellor Indigenous at the University of New South Wales and currently serves as a UN expert on the Human Rights Council's expert mechanism on the rights of Indigenous people. Professor Davis, look, I can't imagine the frustration you all must have felt when the Uluru Statement was rejected by Malcolm Turnbull's government. What do you say to his argument that it would create a third chamber in the parliament and confuse Australians? I think what Malcolm Turnbull was doing was being a politician. I think we live in an era in Australia in most liberal democracies where they are politically inert when it comes to any kinds of complex law reform. Barnaby Joyce has since apologised and accepted that it's not a third chamber and the bulk of conservative LNP politicians have accepted it's not a third chamber. I suppose Turnbull made that statement at the time for reasons that I think are external to the work of the Referendum Council because it's simply not factual. The voice to parliament is an idea that has been adopted by multiple liberal democracies around the world who have significant Indigenous populations. Really what it is is a mechanism to enhance Aboriginal or Indigenous participation in the democratic decision-making of the state. So it's very common. It's very pedestrian reform. As to what the kind of meat on the bones of a voice to parliament looks like, we've had a joint select committee That is spent a whole year looking at that. We have the material, the records of meetings of the dialogue as to what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people thought it would look like. So I guess to be very brief, it would be some kind of mechanism that enabled grassroots communities to elect their First Nations representatives, to have somebody in Canberra who can make decisions and contribute to decision-making such as, you know, the recent bushfire crisis have traditional owners, have people from the ground there involved in those conversations so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander views aren't being filtered through, you know, black elites or white bureaucrats. And so what that means then is that the policy making and the decision making is much more effective. It's better policy making. And what that means is you're likely to see 
far better improvements in people's lives, whether it's their education, whether it's rates of incarceration, whether it's health, we say that the quality of policymaking and lawmaking around Aboriginal affairs will be vastly improved by a voice to parliament. Why can't we get this done? You've mentioned it's common in countries around the world to enact these types of law changes. What are these forces that you mentioned that are holding us back? Why can't we get this done? I think that's such a great question because obviously it's one that's occupied us for a long time. Insofar as the voice to parliament, I don't know why. I mean, the very nature of conservatism is that you don't like things to change. Having said that, the Australian democracy is meant to change. Our institutions are built to evolve. But also our constitution has a provision in it that our founding fathers put into it that said this constitution needs to change with the times. So even the drafters of the constitution knew that Australia in 2020 isn't going to look like what it looked like in 1901. And we know in 1901 Aboriginal people were expressly not included in Australian Federation. So it's a little bit frustrating. I mean, some Aboriginal people postulate that, you know, there's a billion-dollar industry on Aboriginal disadvantage that funds lots of corporations and lots of businesses and, and perhaps it's just people don't want to fix the problem. I think most Australians, at least the polling shows, somewhere between 60 and 70% of Australians are on board intuitively with this idea before we have even run a campaign. So I think Aussies get it. You know, we've got to do something and, you know, why not allow people just to have a say in decisions that are made about them? I mean, it seems pretty logical. The only other explanation I have is the problems of the way in which liberal democratic governments are functioning around the world. The nature of modern liberal democracies are that they are ballot box based, meaning most people's participation in the democratic life of the state, that their civic participation is limited to voting at the ballot box. But there's many, many more things that citizens can do to influence power. And I think post Uluru, post the bushfires, we're starting to see citizens starting to talk about other ways in which you can influence politicians to act. I mean, they're our representatives. It seems that in 2020 there are more Australians of non-Aboriginal heritage who are more understanding of what it means to be Aboriginal in this country and are joining causes like Invasion Day marches and things like that, knowing that their support is just as important. But what can we do to help facilitate change in this manner, in helping get Aboriginal people, First Nations people recognised in the Constitution? Is there anything tangible that we can be allies with? I think Invasion Day marches are really important. I also think it's important for us not to think that just marching once a year is going to make a significant difference because what we need is substantive reform. And the substantive reform is really, really difficult to get. And as I've been saying, it can't happen without Australians backing it. And given that we've seen the inability and incapacity because of politics and external players to our democracy, we've seen this inertia in the parliament on climate change and the people who are suffering are Australians and we see our fellow Australians suffering. Similarly, we've seen Aboriginal people suffering for years and years, visibly in stories and photos, and they're suffering because of the inertia of Parliament to make decisions that, you know, will help address Aboriginal disadvantage. And that is to say for about over a decade, we've been locked out of decision-making. And Aussies are actually really shocked by that, but it's very, very true. 
There are very few Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander bureaucrats and there's very few at the table who are making decisions about our lives. So I think I think it's great that more and more Aussies are recognising that Australia Day is very offensive and hurtful for many of us Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and acknowledging that. But as you say, we must put that into action and support some of the structural reforms that we're trying to prosecute because we're such a small percentage of the Australian population. And when you talk to politicians and pollsters, what they will tell you is they only look to the median. They're interested in middle Australia who will get them across the line once every three years. They're not interested in the small numbered groups that sit outside of that mean. And it's okay if you're a small numbered group and you have a lot of money to influence the state, but we don't fall into that category. We're the first peoples of the continent who are trying to come to a resolution on the fact that the land was acquired without any proper recognition or compensation or reparation, and that is part of what Invasion Day is about. And the Uluru Statement really is that roadmap to peace. It's saying, look, you haven't settled the original grievance. You need to come to some settled ground with blackfellas on this so that the country can move forward and so the country can have some peace. Today's episode of The Quickie is a little longer than usual because you can't speak about the Uluru Statement from the heart without actually hearing what it has to say. We, gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture, from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancient tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? That peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alien from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention, in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship 
with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarrata Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Voice, treaty, truth. This episode of The Quickie was produced by Melanie Tate with audio production by Ian Camilleri. For more episodes, you can find us at mamamia.com.au forward slash the quickie.